Well, Merry Christmas, friends. Thank you so much for gathering here uh, this afternoon. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. If you're somebody that is uh, new to Cross Point, my name is Jamie. It is my absolute joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here. Uh, it's my joy to open up the scriptures uh, with you all this morning. If you're gathered for Cross Point at home, uh, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, wherever you're tuning in from. It really is uh, a great gift um, to be able to have both you all here in person, but also the technology to be able to have people join in from afar. So friends, um, Merry Christmas. So glad that you've taken the time to, to gather here this afternoon. A uh, quick round of applause, appreciation. This is a family style service. We love kids. There are kids here. So let's hear for the kids in the service this morning or afternoon. And so... We're going to open up the scriptures. We're going to look at a passage uh, that as I read it here in a moment, um, it's from the Gospel of Matthew. It's how the book of Matthew, it's how the New Testament begins. After several hundred years of silence, we get this new word. It's Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And as I read this in a moment, you'll see like, huh, maybe this is, why did Jamie pick this text? Like, why, why this? It may not be the most traditional of Christmas stories but it is so key to understanding what we're here to celebrate together this afternoon. And so I want to invite you to use one of the Bibles. You do not need to hear my thoughts or my opinions on Christmas and all this. We want you to hear from God's word. And so there are Bibles in the pews. You can also scan the QR code uh, that's in the pew in front of you or go to thisiscp.church. You'll see a little next steps icon you can click and you'll see a thing that says sermon notes. And if you click that, you will be able to access the text that will be in this afternoon, as well as anything I put up on the slides. But if you are able, I want to invite you, Just we have this holy word that God has given to us. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read God's word? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is God's word for us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Alchem, and Alchem, the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I'm just a glutton for punishment. I'm like, let me see how many names I can mispronounce in front of a group of people on Christmas Eve. But friends, I want to dive into this story because I believe if we understand what's happening here, we'll begin to have a new appreciation for this Christmas story. And so for just a moment, I want to invite you, in the midst of all the busyness, kids that are excited about waking up tomorrow morning and presents and just the anxiousness and all that. And if you're like, what about the kids? I'm excited too. Like, whatever it happens to be. But to take a moment and just to calm our hearts, to know that the God of the universe has you here in this moment, that you and I would be fully present to what he has for us. I know December, I mean, it's, it's chaotic, it's crazy. You're probably like me, and every year you go in thinking like, this year will be different, we've got a good plan, and then it's just like, nope, that's not going to work. But I want to invite us, for one, just to celebrate, like, you're here. Like, amidst all the things, like, you're here, and we get to, we get to tell this story together. I know I'm the one up here with the microphone, but really, we are gathered together as God's people to declare to sing and to celebrate the story of God who's come to dwell with us. And so for a moment, would you do this? Would you just calm your hearts to whatever extent you can and ponder with me for a moment? Ponder the names that I just read. Some of them I'm sure you're familiar with, you've heard of before, and some you're like, I have no idea who that person is or was. But know this. As I read Matthew 1, 1 to 17, every name listed as a real person with a real story, somebody made in the image and the likeness of God. And all these names, at one time, they inhabited a real time and real space, and they dealt with all the awkwardness that this world has to offer, all the pain, the tribulation, all those things. I think we can forget that sometimes. I mean, they dealt with learning to eat solid food. They learned to sleep through the night. They learned whatever it meant in the ancient world to be potty trained. Like, they did all of that. But more than that, right, these are people who dealt with disappointments, frustrations, sadness, rejection. These are people, every name that I read, people who have sinned, and people who were sinned against, people who carried shame, people who experienced loss and heartache. And we're going to look at a few of them in just a moment in more detail. Not all of them, lest you think we're never going to get home, but we're going to look at a few of them. But for now, I just want to invite you for a moment, just to the extent that you can, like, feel the shared humanity. The names might be different. They might be hard to pronounce, but friends, Humanity, this shared experience. And all of these people, every single one that Matthew lists out here, as he's introducing the story of Jesus, all of them had waited. They all had anticipated. They all had wondered, like, how will this story that they're part of, like, work out? 
What's going to happen to them? And they all had deep longings. They had deep desires. But in various ways, and here's what I want to put before you, their desires were too weak. They were people that had settled. And if we're honest, we are people that oftentimes settle. Here here are the words from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. He says this regarding our desires. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Friends, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The people in this list have settled. You and I have settled. But friends, whether they would recognize it, whether they knew it or not, there was this deep longing, this ultimate desire that every person that's listed in this genealogy, they had a longing for Emmanuel. They had a longing. Emmanuel simply means God with us. And it's this story, friends, that I want to explore together for just a few minutes. It's this story that Matthew is introducing us to. Like, Matthew is anxious to tell this story. Like, if we started in verse 18, is more traditional telling, right? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's what we expect. But in this moment, friends, Matthew's saying, I want to highlight a few things. And so let's talk about this longing for Emmanuel. Let's dive into this for just a few moments together this afternoon. And the first thing that we see in in verse 1 is literally this. I want to put before you, Matthew is grounding this in ultimate reality. He does not begin his account, right, once upon a time. He does not say, this is the beginning of a fairy tale that I'd like to just gather you around and tell you. No, no. The reason he starts with the genealogy is he's grounding this in reality. He says this, the book of the genealogy, the book of beginnings, it's that same word where we get Genesis. It's this origin story. And Matthew is cluing us in and saying, there's been all this silence. For hundreds of years, God's people have been waiting. And now what he's declaring here is, oh, this is Genesis. This is new creation. God is bursting forth right in the midst of this story with all the hurts and the pains and the waiting and the, and the ways that we have settled. And he says this, it's the genealogy. It's the story of Jesus. Jesus the Christ. It means he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And then it anchors this Jesus. Like in the ancient world, to, to give a genealogy, I mean, that's your resume. That's what you'd showcase. You're like, no, this is the, these are the people that I come from. And Matthew knows this, and he says, listen, this Jesus comes from the son. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's not a fairy tale. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, we read these words. They're spoken to King David about his family line. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever, There was this promise given to David that there would one day be this ultimate king. And what is Matthew doing? He's saying, oh, it's anchored there. You're a son of David. He comes out of that line. 
But lest we think for a moment that it's just about this royal line for God's chosen people, it goes back even further. Did you notice? Because he says not only a son of David, but a son of Abraham. And if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 12, we would get these words, these promises that are spoken as God makes a covenant with this man named Abram at the time, who would become Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, hear this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the Hebrew, guess what all means? All, right? Um, it literally, it's, it's him saying like, no, like everybody can get in on this. This is not this exclusive thing. It's an exclusive message about Jesus and the way to salvation, but anybody can get in on this. And so right at the beginning, Matthew is saying, oh, there's a king. There's this new creation that's happening, but it's meant to be a blessing for all peoples. And so, friends, if we look at that and we think, oh, it's the reality of Jesus I think sometimes if you're like me, you can read the Bible and forget, though, the problems that they faced and the problems that they created, not just things that were done to them, but the ways they contributed to the mess. There's literally one perfect person in the scriptures. This is not a story of a bunch of different heroes. It's a story about one hero, and the one hero is Jesus, and this is his story, and we get to tell this story. We get to be swept up into this story. And so the reality is, I think if we're not careful, is we can lose sight. And we can think, oh, man, yeah, Abraham and David, wow, like these kind of pillars of the faith. And God used them. But friends, this, these next few verses, I want to just highlight a few things as we look at the relatives of Jesus, the pedigree of Jesus, the people in Jesus's family tree. Maybe you've done some research before and you've looked up your your ancestry and you've studied like, you know, the different generations and how far back and all of these things. That's what Matthew is giving us. But he's not giving it to us in a way so that we would see, oh, Jesus has got this, this special line. No, he's showcasing just how normal, in many ways, how dysfunctional the family line of Jesus is. Just getting you ready for time with all of your relatives, right? It's like, hey, listen, nobody's got a perfect family tree. Everybody's got things that are are weird and broken. And we see it here. And so, friends, I just want to point this out to you. I mean, even I mentioned a moment ago, like Abraham. It's like, yeah, right? Okay, hero of the faith. Except God came to him and made these promises in Genesis 12. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then the very next thing that happens, if you read the rest of chapter 12, all right? is Abraham has to go to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And as he gets to Egypt, he says, hey, to his wife, Sarah, he's like, you're beautiful. And Pharaoh is going to think you're beautiful. Um, And so I don't want to be killed because he wants to have you. And so will you tell him that I'm your brother? So Abraham, right, this great man, man of faith, and right, Abram to Abraham and all this stuff, suddenly is like, hey, I need you to lie. And she gets taken into Pharaoh's harem. That's That's not a normal story, right? But that's Abraham. And if you're like, well, he learned his lesson, except he didn't. He did it twice. We don't have time to get into all that. But from there, we read about Abraham. There's Isaac and there's Jacob. Friends, as we make our way through this list, if we were to stop at everyone, there's a story about every single person. Jacob deceives his brother. Jacob is a trickster. He's a deceiver. He's a man on the run. He is not a man who's honoring God with his decisions. And so right away, this is meant to clue us in. 
to let us see this story of God's grace and of his mercy. Now, there's some other fascinating things that are happening here. And I want to call your attention. There, there are four names that are given. There are four women in particular that are spoken of. And in this ancient time, in that place, genealogies, you would trace it through the, the, the men. You would never give mention to the women. I mean, that in and of itself is something of anomaly. It's unexpected. But it's showing how God's kingdom worked. And then when we'll see in a moment who these women are, And what had happened in their their life, it should astound us and just see, oh my goodness, how God loves to be at work. Lest you think for a moment that, oh, you're probably overplaying it, like it really was, like it's not a big deal that this listed. A good Jewish man in the time of Jesus would wake up every day. Here's how their quiet time started, all right? He, He would start his day with a prayer, Lord, I thank you that I am not a slave, that I'm not a Gentile, and that I'm not a woman. That's how he began, right? That was the quiet time every morning for a good Jewish man. It's in that context that we get this. And notice what God is doing through his servant, Matthew. Because we come to a woman named Tamar. She's in the family line of Jesus. Now, I recognize, friends, this is a family-style service. And I'm not going to dive into all this, but I want you to know, like, this is not your just run-of-the-mill Bible story. I don't know if there are any run-of-the-mill Bible stories, but this one would not be one that you're probably like, gather everyone around. So I'm not going to go into great detail, but just to know this, right? Judah and Tamar end up having children, but Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. This is not, you're like, man, I thought my family was dysfunctional. Like, that's next level, right? So you got Judah and Tamar. Then we, we move along and we meet. This comes out of Joshua chapter 2 as the people are getting ready to go in the promised land. It tells us that it ends up being this relationship between this man and Rahab. Rahab is a Gentile prostitute in Jericho that hides the 12 spies. This woman is in the family tree of King Jesus. And he's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to push that into the shadows. It's like right here in the text for people for thousands of years to be able to read. And then it goes from there. And we meet another. Think about it. She's a Gentile woman with this terrible reputation. And then we meet a man named Boaz who takes this woman, Ruth, to be his wife. Now, Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites were not even allowed to be near the assembly of the worship of God. They were forbidden to be there. Their entire family line is traced back to an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. That's the storyline here. And God says, that's going to be part of the family tree of Jesus. So you've got Boaz, you've got Ruth. I mean, as we read a moment ago, look at verses 5 and 6. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, right? So Boaz's mom is Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed became the father of Jesse, and who's Jesse? The father of David, who would become king. This is the family line. And maybe at that point, we'll read through and we think, okay, great, we've gotten to King David now. But if you know anything about King David, you know that he's a man after God's own heart, but he's a colossal failure as well. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer at best, likely one who assaults a woman is probably more accurate. 
And it tells us here in the text, it speaks of David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. No, she's not named. This is Bathsheba. And Uriah was one of the mighty men of King David who had helped to rescue him and save him and protect him as one of David's inner circle, one of his best friends. And he ends up in this relationship with his good friend's wife, and he ends up killing Uriah. This is David. He's in the family line of Jesus, and so is Bathsheba, who together they would have a son named Solomon. If you haven't heard about him, he had a thousand wives and concubines. This story just keeps getting worse. It is not progressing toward the point of like, oh, here's, here's all the righteousness. No, it's why the psalmist would write in Psalm 52, two to three, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what does it say? They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so, friends, it's in this place. And we could keep going down through the list. But it's in this place that Jesus the Christ is born to a young virgin named Mary. It's this Jesus that's born in Bethlehem. It's this Jesus that would relocate to Nazareth, where it was told, does anything good come from Nazareth? This is the one we worship. This is the one we're gathering here tonight, this afternoon, to celebrate that God came and became, took on flesh and blood, that he moved into the neighborhood. Listening to an old sermon by Alistair Begg on this particular text, he had a great line, though. As we look at this list, friends, it's easy to keep it in the abstract and those people back then, but it speaks to us right here. And he said this, the followers, meaning the followers of Jesus, we as the church, he's saying the followers are like the forebearers. And so friends, on this Christmas Eve, as we celebrate Jesus, the God-man, May we see through the power of the Spirit that that we are no different and that God loves to work in the most unexpected ways, the most unexpected people. He loves to showcase his grace, his power. He loves to take the weak to showcase his strength. He loves to take the foolish of the world to showcase his wisdom. And so look, look with me at this last verse, all right? What we see now is what's on promise. Verse 17 tells us about a rest that Jesus offers for us. My guess is, listen, you're likely exhausted from all that's been going on, and you might have aspirations of, all 2024 is going to be different, and I'm going to get a good plan together, and I'm going to eat right, and I'm going to exercise, I'm going to go to bed on time, and I hope you do all of those things. But there is an exhaustion at a soul level that we feel because we are running constantly trying to prove trying to measure up. And this Jesus bursts forth to people that are no different than you and me. And he offers this rest. Now, it's seen in some surprising ways. Here's verse 17. So the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, where the people of God went into exile, was 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And you might read that and be like, What in the world does that have to do with a rest, what Jesus is doing? But friends, oh, this is such a brilliant line. To the Hebrew people, there's two things that are going on here. The first is this. 
each consonant in the Hebrew alphabet represented, had a numeric value, okay? And the name of David, if you were to add up what his letters added up to, adds up to the number, can you take a guess? It's 14. And it's a way of showcasing, oh, this is the story about the ultimate king. If you read through the list again of all the people and you add up all the fathers, guess who the 14th one is that's listed in the genealogy? It's David. And so it's this way that Matthew, this just the brilliance of God, to put all these details in here and to showcase for us, like, oh, it's telling the story. So that's, that's amazing at one level. But then there's something even deeper. What we have here, friends, and I came across this in Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Christmas. I'd never seen this before, and he comments on this. He's like, hey, if you've got three sets of 14, that means you've got six sets of seven. I'm not good at math. I'm glad he did it for me, all right? Um, but you've got these six sets. But in the Hebrew culture, in the mind, in the time of Jesus, seven was the embodiment. That number represented wholeness and rest and flourishing. Because what? God did what on the seventh day? He rested. And God put something in place that not only would one day a week would we rest as God's people, but that once every seven years, God's people were called to let their fields, because it was an agrarian culture, they were let to let those lie dormant, fallow, so that they would be renewed. But then there was the ultimate thing, friends. There would be seven periods of seven. It meant that in the 49th year, it was called the year of Jubilee. And it was the year where property went back to their original owners. It was the year where the debts that you have incurred were all forgiven. It was the, the year where if you were a servant or a slave that you were set free. And it was this ultimate rejoicing. That's what took place. And the way that Matthew has put this together, the way God has put this together, showcasing for us, oh, there's been six of these, but where's the seventh? The story of Christmas Eve, what we're here to celebrate tonight is that Jesus has ushered that in. He has brought the year of Jubilee where our sins are forgiven, where the rest that you and I long for, more than just a nap, all right? But at a soul level, he offers it to you and to me. This is why Jesus would say these words, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amazing verses. A number of years ago, there was a Barna study, and they found that 82% of Americans believe something. And the something that they found was that 82% of Americans believe that there's a Bible verse that says God helps those who help themselves. Unless you think, well, that's crazy. A bunch of people believe in that, but the church is better. 81% of the church believed it, <laughs> according to this study. And there's something in the water, man. There's something in the psyche of us that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that God's grace and this, but like, I've got to do it. I've got to achieve. And Jesus comes and says, no, come to me, all who are heavy laden. Come to me who are weary and beat down, who have not got it figured out. Come to me, all you people whose stories match up with Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, which should be all of us. The key to getting in on this Christmas rest, that rest that Jesus offers is to admit your need for me to admit my need. To admit that we've been trying to do it on our own and we just keep creating more of a mess. And to repent of the ways that we've tried to be God. To receive his grace. To believe that Jesus 
lived a sinless life, that he died in your place and in my place, and that three days later, that little baby boy that had grown up to be this perfect man, that he died for you, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he conquered Satan's sin and death. That's the story that we celebrate. And so, friends, I want to give us a chance to, to respond. Pray the Spirit would lead you to repent of what you need to repent of, to remember what we're here to celebrate, and that you and I would rest, that we would heed the invitation of King Jesus to come and to rest. So I'm going to pray for us, and the worship team's going to come back up, and then we're going to continue in our time of worship. And we're going to worship through song. We're going to worship through lighting candles in a, in a few minutes. We're also going to worship through this meal, this means of God's grace that he's given to us. Well, let me pray for us, and then I'll explain what we're going to do next. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness, for your grace, for your mercy. Jesus, we thank you that you entered into our world. We thank you that your body was broken and that your blood was shed so that we could be made whole, that we could find the rest that our souls long for. We thank you that it's not just wishful thinking of Emmanuel, but that, God, you came to be with us, and that you've rescued us, and you're continuing, you continue to be with us through your spirit, and that, Jesus, one day you are coming back, that there will be a final advent where you come and you set everything right, and so as we long and we wait for that day, we gather as the church. We worship you. We sing praises to you because it's what we were made to do. And so, God, I pray that as we continue in worship, that you would get your glory and that we would experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.